there, all you fearless ficuses. Welcome back to another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. My name is Sarah. I am one of your hosts. I am joined by the incredible Casey. That's the most boring adjective. I just couldn't think of anything in the moment and I didn't want to drag it out. Always complimentary. So I'm always going to say, thanks, Sarah. You're a wonderful co-host. Hi, everybody. I'm Casey. Casey and I are friends. We are former co-workers now living across the country from each other, but joined by our love of nature and our desire to do what we can to make the earth a little greener. So we're, as always, happy to be here. We're so thankful for all of you listening. Casey, how's life? How are things going? How was your week? How was your Easter? Oh, Easter was lovely. I got to see lots of family this week and the weather was really, really nice for a couple of days. And now it's really, really bad for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And that's just what April is. It just plays with your feelings even harder than March because you start to have expectations. That's for true. <laughs> so, uh, so I mean, I guess I, I can't complain. I, things are going. What about you, Sarah? Good. Yeah. Same things are going. I worked on Easter, so it is what it is. I'm far away from family, but that's okay. It was lovely here and continues to be lovely. I saw that there was some more snow back up in the Midwest. So I'm just, just living the dream down here. <laughs> People keep being like, oh, why don't you have more tomatoes? And I'm like, because you are wishful thinkers right now. <laughs> like, remember what happens. It's going to get cold. And of course we hit 29 last night. Oh, so it was quite yeah. chilly, but we did not get snow. Hey, last time we talked for 20 minutes before we got to our content. So I want to make sure we don't get too sidetracked. Yes do a little bit of housekeeping here. We have had some listener feedback this week. Yay. Yay. We appreciate that so much. Thanks for sharing folks. Yeah. These are from past episodes. So if you haven't listened to our gardening episode or our dairy episode, both good times. So first our listener and friend, Julie shared with us that one of the things we talked about during the gardening episode is getting your soil tested potentially if you want to grow food at home. Mm -hmm. And she said that there are some great resources in the U.S. at land-grant colleges that have state resources that help you test your soil. And there's at least one college per state. So she said it's very underutilized and encourage folks to check that out. Yes. Hi, Julie. We miss you. And thank you for sharing that. And that's such a good point. I didn't know that, that there had to be at least one in every state, but I have utilized them. Really? Purdue. I mean, I would use Purdue resources, mm. not like I've reached out and contacted per se, but I've utilized the resources that they've put out. Um, so I would use Purdue's resources when I was living back up in Indiana. And then there are two down here in Florida and I love the University of Florida. They do a lot with sustainability, but I just recently found after your gardening episode, Casey, that they have an app for plants and finding the right plants for your yard. And it was fantastic. Cause I used, I used to use an app called be smart, which I discovered mm-hmm. with, is apparently no longer supported, unfortunately. So, but with that one, you could kind of search 
by type of flower or color or what you wanted to attract and it would give you plants native to your area. But University of Florida has done that for us here in Florida. So it's not for everyone, but it's super helpful for me. They have a lot of great information, not just native plants, but non-invasive plants and for a variety of uh, those uh, like growing zones that we talked about, soil types, sun, shade, whatever, all of those things that you can kind of filter through. It's amazing. Um, so yeah, that's just one example of some resources that you can find. And so thanks for pointing that out, Julie. Yeah. Coincidentally, I was on Penn State's website this week because I was looking up native perennials. So they uh, are our state, surprise, surprise, uh, land grant college here. Um, the second point I wanted to uh, point out is listener Melissa has Who is some... a, a friend of mine and <laughs> wonderful. Okay. So thanks for listening, Melissa. Thanks for listening. Uh, pointed out that while we covered some of the health differences about why you might drink one type of dairy alternative versus another that we didn't really talk about the fact that a lot of like faux dairy has a <laughs> lot of additives that, you know, you want to be mindful of if you are switching over. And I did have vegan cheese this last week because I was like, <laughs> I feel like I have to commit to this because right? I was going went out to a restaurant. So I had vegan cheese on a quesadilla. I don't know if I can buy into it, but I did think about also Melissa's comment that, you know, this is a synthetic cheese. So it does have to mimic the texture and taste and color of yeah. cheese. And that, that requires a lot of additives. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to add on to, to what you oh, were yeah. saying. All, all very good. And it, yeah, it is something we, we just barely touched on, but is I think important to each person to, so make sure that you check the labels as you're reading these things, even, you know, for things like meat, that's one of the reasons where I, that I haven't gone over to try all of these, you know, plant-based meat product, fake meat products that are coming out because a lot of them do have things like a higher sodium level and sure. sodium is a thing that I'm trying to watch in particular. So you do have to weigh, you know, she mentioned in her comment that all of these things are intertwined, human health and environmental health are tied together. So it's all, it, they're all good things to consider. She also mentioned a couple of books and she commented on uh, one of our, our photos for the episode. So if you're interested in reading more, I haven't read them, but I'm looking forward to checking them out. Yeah. She also pointed out that graphs aren't the end all be all. We post graphs. Graphs are fun visuals. And that's something we touched on a little bit. Like one of the reasons I was avoiding soy is because even though they have relatively small land use, that land use often is in vulnerable places for deforestation. So, you know, there's always complications. There's mm -hmm. ways to manipulate graphs. There's ways to make them say what you want. So, uh, it's all, uh, I read a lot of graphs for this week's episode too. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, all great things. We really appreciate the feedback. We love hearing from you guys. Yeah. So Sarah, this week I decided I wanted to talk about something that I've actually sort of been avoiding, even trying to understand for a while <laughs> that might be putting it a little too hard, but basically the IPCC climate reports that we hear about every once in a while. And so I decided to actually delve into these reports a little bit. And I personally have felt immense pressure over my life to stop climate change, <laughs> which sounds, I think, crazy. And it is, but also is something that I feel like I was tasked with. And I, I was wondering how your personal responsibility in climate change 
has shaped your understanding of how to help? Like, how has this been framed for you since you've learned about climate change? How does it frame your attitudes and your, your ability to process what's going on? I'm going to try to, if I'm not answering the question you're asking, I asked eight questions, dot I think. Me. <laughs> but, yeah. but, and I'm going to try to, to process this. I've been thinking about this and I feel like it's something that I'm not very good at expressing. First of all, I will say, I don't think it sounds crazy to feel, to feel that pressure. I think that probably a lot of folks who are in the envi- environmental field would say similar, maybe, maybe not. I am not one of them. So that's how I guess I would answer this question is I have, I have not felt that pressure. I have never felt particularly motivated by climate change as a whole. And maybe that sounds weird. And I don't want to make it sound like I don't think that it is an important thing or an urgent thing. It's just in my mind, such a big thing that has so many moving parts and pieces and so many factors and different outcomes and different possibilities and feedbacks and all of these things that A, it felt too far over my head. I was like, I can't grasp this enough, like the understanding of it to feel like it's my responsibility, I think is part of it. But for me, and I didn't, I didn't even really like focus on it until later in life. Well, I guess I should ask, when did you first become, I think I've asked this before, but like aware in a a more like into, not just like heard the word, but like aware of what it was. I don't really remember, honestly, like part of me feels like I probably always kind of was aware of it growing up. As we talked about way back in the beginning of the podcast, I didn't get into conservation or the environmental field until I was in college. And the way that I got into it was uh, had a lot to do with the little things that each one of us could do. So I think that kind of shaped me also into not so much focusing on this big thing, but what are all of the little things that I can do? And then the more that I learned and the more that I got into it, the more kind of awareness I had that it's not just about these little things, like bigger things are going to need to change too. And how do I have an impact on that? So, so that sort of came over time, but I also, again, I think, you know, my motivation has not been so much, okay, I need to stop climate change. My motivation is the same that it is for why I'm in the field in general is just that I care about creation and I care about other people and all of the things that I think are important for us to do to mitigate climate change are important things for so many other reasons too. Like I care about air pollution. I care about people having access to food. I care about people's homes being safe. I care about people having places to live. I care about, you know, animals having appropriate habitats. Like all of those things are all like, they're all connected. And so those, those were my motivations of, of just wanting to be the most responsible steward of the environment and caring for other people as best as I could. 
are what motivated me. And I think I just learned more and more how those were connected to climate change. Does that make sense? Did I just go on a complete ramble? (laughs) No, I think that was a very like emotionally mature way to honestly, that you just wrapped up the episode. Good job. I think we can. Perfect. Good night, everyone. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess maybe I was like, I mean, I think that that's a really great way to think about it. And we're going to talk a little bit about a lot of those connections there. I think for me, I was introduced to climate change in a way that was maybe developmentally inappropriate for me. Mm. I think I might have been 12 or 13. I must've been, I must've been 13 or 14, I guess, because I remember being in middle school and an inconvenient truth came out. Okay. And not just did we watch that because I think that it is a worthwhile watch, but the teacher who had us put like he had us put on this film viewing for the public framed it in a way I was part of a gifted class. So we were always kind of asked to do things that were like, what are you doing for the future? What are you going to do? And he kind of framed it in a way that was like, so you guys are going to stop climate change. And that like was my first introduction to what it was. And then I watched the movie. And was like, oh no. (laughs) Um, And that's like, you know, the moment I started caring, obviously going into conservation, like that gets tied into all the other, I already cared about animals that that's sort of been my inroads to it, but it impacts, you know, life on earth at all. You know, (laughs) like it's not just humans, but I think that like, that's part. I think also I have like a little bit of a personality defect where I can't stop like trying to to save things. But, uh, but I think that's sort of where my eco anxiety, I mean, again, I was someone who like raised money to stop deforestation because deforestation was basically my climate change prior to climate change. But, uh, so I think that's like part of my personality, but I also think that that's just how it's been framed to me. And like, even growing up people being like, you guys are the ones who are going to fix things, you guys. And it always felt Mm -hmm. like an an abdication of responsibility of the the present. Like, I don't know, you have purchasing power. And, right. And you're the grown up. Why can't you stop it? Why do I have to figure out how to do it? So anyway, all this to say, we're going to talk about one of the things that sort of informs the general public, but a lot of policy decisions on climate this week. We're going to talk about the IPCC. I'm going to do the acronym wrong again, but stay tuned and we're going to talk about it. All right. We're back to talk about the IPCC climate report. Um, I was thinking about this partially because we're doing this sort of energy kick. And one of the reasons to care about energy is things that you've talked about, Sarah, air pollution, other factors, but a big one. And the context we talk about energy, I feel like the most is how it impacts climate change. So we'll do more deep dives on those particular topics. But today we're going to talk about the IPCC climate reports. Sarah, do you know what the IPCC is? I do. And it's so funny that you mentioned the acronym because I say it wrong. I'm pretty sure like- I want there to be like two keys in it. I don't- I say IPCC. Yes. That must be something else. But it's having to do with climate Climate change. change. So there's two Cs. 
one P, but I just, it feels better to say IPPC. The IPCC stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So this is a United Nations organization. So it's made up of the member countries of the United Nations. And it was, it started back in the 80s, right? And uh, basically what they do is sort of assess the state of affairs in the world of climate change. That's a terrible explanation. The state of affairs affairs in the world world of of climate change. We are I mean, really, though, yeah, right? I mean, that's, that's not they wrong. It's they, just... pu- they are putting together information and putting it together, as you mentioned, largely to help inform policymakers of how what the state of things are and what the I, I think they look at. Do they do kind of the, the current data, possible implications and then mitigations? Are those kind of the. Yep. We're going to get into that. We're going to just start real basic with what, what the heck they are. So first note, you mentioned it started in the eighties. That surprised me. Um, anytime I hear clips of like, I don't know, Ronald Reagan talking about climate change. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) Because I became, you know, it became popularized. I feel like to the public as an urgent, like sort of deal in the two thousands. And it also became a very contentious issue in our country in the 2000s. It was, you know, an argument about, and still is to a certain extent, is this happening? Are humans causing it? So the fact that we've noticed that the climate is changing, that politicians on both sides of this political spectrum here in the States acknowledged that something was happening, it always surprises me a little bit. And I kind of looked into this super quick too, Apparently it was as early as 1896, this is according to NASA, that a Swedish scientist first predicted that changes in atmospheric carbon dioxide levels could impact temperature. 1896, people are amazing. People are amazing. Scientists are incredible. Yeah, it's wild. Like this wasn't... uh, this isn't a new idea. It's not a new idea. It's something that just has become more and more urgent as we keep going. And we've become better able to study it. I feel like. Yes, absolutely. So because when the first report came out, they were like, we're pretty sure this is going on, but scientists, one of the things that I feel like a lot of us experienced during the pandemic is how wishy-washy to us scientists seem about different things, but really it's, they're gathering more and more evidence. So they're kind of like, we're pretty sure this is what's going on. We can say it with a certain level of confidence, but we can't say a hundred percent. So when you try and pin down scientists on certain questions, if they can't say like a hundred percent certainty, that's not because they don't think it's happening. It's because it's inaccurate to say a hundred percent certainty these days. I think a lot of these scientists would agree there's a hundred percent certainty uh, that climate change is caused in part by human activities. So like you said, they, they assess the state of the world, right? <laughs> the state of the world of climate change. <laughs> Importantly, they do not conduct their own research. So they basically like, if you guys know what a meta analysis is, this is the first thing that popped into my mind where you I feel like meta-analysis is my favorite way to, it's not cheating, but it feels like sort of cheating. <laughs> if, yes, if I were going to do a study, it would absolutely be a meta-analysis. <laughs> I, 
I'm not going to go into the field, but I'm going to read all these papers of people who did and figure out what they <laughs> feel like is happening. And it, of course, is extremely complicated because everyone's using different metrics yes. and you're trying to figure out the reliability of different data. And this is arguably the largest meta-analysis of any sort of science in the world because it involves hundreds to thousands of scientists every time that they do these assessments. They're co-written by hundreds of scientists, and then they have collaborators that include hundreds more scientists to try and get the best data possible to help policymakers understand the state of the climate and projections for climate change. So Sarah, why hundreds? Why can't they just be like, you're really specialized in this, Mr. Expert. Can you tell us what's going on? Can you imagine if you were like the one person that everybody was like, climate change, ma'am, go. What should we do about this? I'm, I emotionally can't handle being one minor person knowing about climate change. So I'm, no, I can't imagine. Uh, so that's one reason uh, we need a lot of people. We need a lot of people because like I said, it's a very complex thing. Nobody can say all of the things, like there are so many factors that contribute to climate change. There are so many factors that have impacts on climate change. There are so many things that they look at in these climate models and projections. There are so many facets of the outcome. Like I was saying, this, this is going to impact uh, the way the way that people live, it's going to impact animal habitats and animal migrations. It's going to impact our food supply. It's going to impact disease and the spread of disease to humans and animals. So there is no one person who can answer all of those questions or study all of those things effectively. So you need a lot of people. Climate change is going to affect me differently in Florida here than it is going to affect you in Pennsylvania than it is going to affect somebody in Ghana or Australia or wherever, uh, or, you know, Hawaii and I think like islands, you know, so it's affecting all over the globe and it is affecting so many different facets and it is affected by so many different facets. So you need a lot of people who know about all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like the global scope, like if you're somebody who's like, I study the uh, migration patterns of kangaroos and how changes in heat or water distribution impacts their migration patterns. Kangaroos aren't typically migratory, but I'm throwing it out there. Um, you might be asked to help collaborate to say like, okay, me and 10 other scientists in Australia who study other animals are able to say that heat changes. And when things get hotter, it's going to impact the ability of Australian wildlife to survive. So they're then compiling that over everywhere. <laughs> I think another reason on top of the just sheer scope is to prevent bias. Mm. Bias. I like, we talk about it. I think a lot with our news sources, a lot about news sources being biased on different views. Bias isn't inherently bad in every case, especially if you can identify what the bias is and then interpret the material based on that. But really they're trying to aim for like the most strictive <laughs> human influence measure of what's going on. Right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. That being said, 
that's actually not entirely what the IPCC is. And that's actually the U.S.'s design. Um, When they were first putting it together, Reagan's administration didn't really want there to be scientists who were just sort of on a panel putting things together. And so they collaborated with the United Nations and the World uh, Meteorological Organization. Oh, the longest words. Um, But basically all of these scientists actually come from member states. And so in some ways that's really nice because you're going to have different viewpoints represented, different stakeholders who are impacted in different ways. But we do know that it does influence actually some things that are in the report. So for example, the latest IPCC report that talks about how to solve climate change isn't the right word, but reduce our emissions. Yeah. Yeah. They talk a lot about carbon capture, which we've talked about before on this as a means to mitigate climate change as opposed to stopping the use of fossil fuels. And that was because the government of Saudi Arabia really lobbied for that inclusion because of course their economy is dependent upon burning fossil fuels. So it's not entirely untouched by political bias. But that being said, the amount of data that they collaborate together is the biggest (laughs) just compilation and analysis of this data. And I think it's really interesting to to think about how many hands touch this and how many people's life work are really impacting these reports. So what are these reports? I kind of feel like we hear about a new report every two months. It does feel like that recently. And I don't know if that's just me becoming more aware. (laughs) Well, it's actually sort of true recently because we're in the end of the sixth cycle of the assessments. So the assessments come out every couple of years and we are on the sixth cycle of assessments. So they like will change leadership. They will reevaluate things going on, especially in the late 2010s. We had a lot more because they started doing some special reports. So that was where you started hearing about the projections of like, if we hit, if we do this and hit 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer versus we hit 2.0 degrees Celsius warmer. I'm sure everyone's heard about these projections that Mm -hmm. they throw out there. These are not predictions, but they are sort of possible futures that are out there. There are real world impacts to these reports. The fifth assessment helped inform the Paris Climate Agreement which is the largest climate agreement ever to help reduce emissions worldwide. And so that was really the targets and goals of that were informed by all the research that was done by these scientists. It's not just scientists yelling into the void. Sometimes I think they probably feel like that, (laughs) but really like it, it helped with a really important international cause, but also it should, it's supposed to help inform people at all different levels of government. We're in the sixth report and the sixth report is broken down in three sections, which you talked about earlier, Sarah. So what are they? Gosh, now I have to remember. So they talk about kind of this, the state of climate change right now. So what the science is showing, what the data is showing right now, like what's the, the most recent info that we have. And then they are going to look at the impacts. So what are the things that we're seeing now? What are the possible things that we're going to be seeing in the future and then the mitigation. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to stop this or reduce these impacts? Yeah. What are some impacts? Yeah. Scenarios. I I should say there's an interesting difference between kind of two and three. Two is like, what are the effects and how can we adapt to it? Mm. Now, I guess part two of why climate change is my, uh, calling, I guess, is my senior project in college. Our senior capstone was 
with two professors who again said, okay, our job is to solve climate change. And one of them had written a book about climate change in Virginia. And we did our projects on how to either stop climate change or how to mitigate the effects and adapt to some of the things happening. So what can we do? My project was a seed bank because plants have a unique challenge in migrating in warmer temperatures. So having a native species seed bank so that we can help transplant some of these populations of trees into different areas. See, it's always around me. (laughs) I feel like, like my parents were very focused on communism when I was a kid, but like that, that was like the thing that they were told that was like the biggest, scariest thing out there. That was the biggest threat to American life. And I feel like climate change is my 1980s communism (laughs) from an American perspective. And I think that maybe that's one analogy I can do to, to help older folks understand why like younger folks might be gung-ho about this particular issue. Is that an unfair comparison? No, I don't know. I'm just, like I said, this is very different from my relationship to this. And so I'm just sitting here trying to contemplate, like, was I just that disconnected from everything? No, I think authority figures told me it was my job and I was like, okay. I I don't recall that ever, like these, these experiences that you're talking about. I guess I just didn't have them. I don't, it's just didn't have people presenting it to me that way. Or I was just like brushed it off my shoulders. I don't know. Maybe I'm being like uh, hyperbolic, but that's how it's always like felt. And again, I, I definitely have a penchant for trying to fix issues that are bigger than myself, but but I feel like it is really interesting that, and you know, it's something that we as environmental educators have grown to know more about too, is the age appropriateness of this. And so it's interesting to see how hearing about it so directly for you, how it's shaped versus me, at least not remembering that I heard about well, it that directly. I mean, you are a couple years older than me. So I might've just been like on the cutting edge of the generations. That's where true like, also. A couple years later, all of a sudden we know that this is a huge issue. So, um, so yeah, so you can adapt to climate change. And then there's also the mitigation efforts where we're trying to stop em- emissions, basically like stop the emissions, capture the emissions, whatever we need right. to do to stop us from increasing that temperature. Uh, I don't know if that was, hopefully it made sense to everybody listening here. So, so yes, they, they came out with the special reports in 2018, 2019, which covered those projections. Um, and the third installment of the sixth assessment just came out recently. And so we will hear this again in August where they'll be like the IPCC has come out with another report, but that's going to be the synthesis of the first three parts, the final paper, for the sixth installment. And then we won't probably have to hear about it for like five years. That that's probably not true. They're going to be like, guys, guys, because we're starting to get to that deadline period. So we'll probably keep hearing about it, but that we're at like the, we're actually in the assessment portion. And just to clarify again, what we said before, when we're talking about, so you're this, you said that this next paper or this next report will be out these, when we say, when we're talking about the report, this is not new data no. being taken. These are the compilations of all of the work that has already been done, that right. has been reviewed and written by this collection of hundreds of different experts in different areas. 
And like, I mean, you probably personally listener have come across a scenario where you've learned more information about something and therefore changed your nuanced viewpoint on it. This is sort of what's going on throughout time is they are narrowing down on specific facts. Like I think the last climate report really connected our increase in extreme weather events to climate change. Whereas before there was an a link that had been identified, but hadn't been necessarily proven to an extent where people felt confident saying that's for sure happening. So we're more and more getting this information from it. And there's some different ways to look at these reports. I always get stressed about the reports. And that's why I said earlier that I sort of have avoided them. I'm kind of like, what could be in it that I haven't heard 80 times? (laughs) And I think maybe I'm not alone in that one, right? I absolutely, like, I don't, seek these out whenever I do start to see these I'll look at a couple of articles talking Mm -hmm. about it because I feel like I should being even though I'm I'm not actually officially employed in the conservation education world currently but still you know having having a foot in that game and having this podcast I want to kind of try to stay aware of those things but again yeah I have never felt like Oh, the new IPCC report is out. Let me sit down and read all of this because I don't feel like, yeah, Yeah. I don't feel like it is for me. I don't, I don't feel like it is necessary for me to read. I am totally very interested though. Like I'm, I'm enjoying that we're talking about this because I do think it's good to be aware of how it works and what's going on. Yeah. I think you should at least know, like, what's up? Because that's, yeah. that's sort of what got me onto this train. It's like another one came out. What, why? <laughs> and yeah. so, yeah, that's where, where we're at right now. And there's some different perspectives that you can have on these documents. So the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres called the document a file of shame, cataloging the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. Ouch. A file of shame. I mean, that's kind of dark, I'm- <laughs> But man, you say it, man, say it. I mean, for real, I I definitely identify with parts of this viewpoint. Mm -hmm. There have been so many empty promises from all sorts of politicians globally promising they were going to do something about this. And we have largely failed. And by we, I don't mean you and me talking on this podcast. I don't mean our listeners. I mean, as governments, as policymakers, as like these people are who are supposed to be acting in our best interest there has been failure and a lot of that has to do with it being hard <laughs> it's not that we don't know what to do it's just that like are we willing to bear the political implications that come with it are we willing to anger corporations are we willing to do the painful part of transitioning normal people out of jobs in their daily lives out to something different even if putting it off is going to make it worse in the long run. Yeah. And I think that is hard. So, you know, we try to mention this every time we talk about it is when we are saying things like this, and sometimes we sound frustrated, it's not because we don't understand the very real (laughs) hard, you know, that's, I think, well, this will come up again when we do our little energy episodes for sure. But we, we recognize the, the impacts that big policy changes have. So we, we understand that those, those things are hard, but when we do, you know, have these climate agreements and we hear about these things and we hear about commitments and then things don't ever change, that is a frustration too. And, and genuinely like the dealing on the back end with what happens with climate change is going to be much more expensive and terrible than dealing with it 
on the front end and preventing some of the worst impacts. And that's sort of outlined in actually a lot of these reports as well. So I can identify with this viewpoint to a certain extent, that frustration. I will say on track towards an unlivable world, we're not headed towards Mad Max Fury Road Mm -hmm. everywhere all the time. (laughs) And I do feel like that that is the impression that sometimes people have. And that can sometimes fuel, I think, more us versus them a mentality than should be there, which is frustrating to, to watch as well. Right. And anything that falls short of that sort of future feels like to some of those people that it disproves that climate change is happening altogether. I was talking to a coworker recently and we were talking about it a little bit and he said, but we'll be, you know, we'll be okay case. And I think I'll be okay. I think me in America, Mm -hmm. in the middle class, in the suburbs, being someone who's had a fairly privileged background, I think I'm going to be okay. But it is the people and the living beings around the world that aren't going to be okay that really stress me out. (laughs) This is not like self-preservation. It is like to a certain extent, like for my potential future children, but just all of the people who won't be okay, just really, that's my motivating factor. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And you and I, we talked about this not too long ago, Casey, not on the podcast, but how that, that, that I think you just echoed I kind of what, what we talk about, that we have the ability, we have the knowledge, we know how to get out of this, but the longer we wait, the more those impacts are going to be. And I 100% that what you just said is what I was thinking about earlier today as I was thinking about recording this podcast and my feelings, like you just said what I want to say, like, I do feel like I will be okay, but that is a motivator for me as well is, you know, what about everybody else and how can we do what we can to lessen those impacts for everyone? Right. And, and saying that I'll be okay doesn't mean that I won't potentially experience some of these impacts. Um, we had hurricane Ida come through our area, uh, this fall and we had the worst flooding we've had in like 50 years and people got flooded out of their houses and those impacts will happen more and more frequently. One of the things that was in one of the reports that I read is that we're going to see highs and lows for rivers at the same location more frequently. So those different systems are going to be impacted and we're going to see it. Even if it, if we're okay in the end, we're going to see it. Sarah, it sounds like you're pretty well adjusted emotionally to the climate (laughs) emergency. Do you experience climate anxiety? And if so, like, it sounds like you're like, you know, I do what I can and, um, and that's important to me and I can't, I can't take responsibility for the whole thing. And that sounds extremely healthy. That is, I think, honestly, where I fall most of the time. That's not to say that I don't have moments, but typically it is moments. And I do, I have to say, because it's true that, you know, we talked about our sort of initial motivations and inspirations for this podcast in general, for why we're interested in nature. And part of mine is my faith. And honestly, that helps me here too. And I do have faith in a creator that is taking care of us. And that is not to say that I think everything's going to be okay because, you know, that is just, that's just to say that it helps me, but it is also a motivation for me to feel like that's why creation care is important 
to me. And I am called to do this for this reason, because creation is important to me. But, but I do think that my faith helps me with that sort of bigger anxiety. uh, Cause I know he's, he's got us too. But yeah, I do think generally that somewhere along the way, it just sort of felt like I can't look too far ahead. I just kind of try to stay in the moment. Like, what can I do right now? These projections are projections if things kind of keep going the way that they've been going. And we know, we know we have what it takes to make changes. So I just keep holding on to that hope that there are going to be changes. And we talked about that with our Hope in Conservation episode as well. And that's one of the things that I will do if I do start to get anxious or frustrated is maybe more my problem is that I'll get frustrated that I do kind of intentionally seek out, okay, what are some good things that are happening? Where are we seeing some progress? Uh, And that'll help kind of get me through those periods. Once again, I feel like I just rambled in a big circle. No, No, I think that that was cohesive and clear. I guess I was thinking um, maybe, you know, I'm someone who considers myself a Christian for sure. Like I said that, like it was like a, oh, on the other hand, but I guess (laughs) I should say is that maybe I, I see it as he's got us in the long run. Like, I, I guess I believe in an afterlife and that'll be okay. Mm-hmm. But like reducing the suffering while we're on all on this earth, I'm, I, I just struggle because I, I think he also not to make this a religious discussion, but we have per- free will and personal choice yes. and we're making bad decisions. <laughs> yes. I know. I agree. I, yes. I don't want to use that as an excuse to, I can do whatever I want and none of this matters. Yeah. But I, I do think know. it helps with my anxiousness just in general. I guess I haven't talked about this on the podcast. I'm someone who's like diagnosed with a mental illness and Mm -hmm. I'm managed through medication. And one of those is anxiety. So like I get anxious about lots of things. (laughs) It's like a generalized anxiety disorder. I occasionally, I don't do it as much anymore. Honestly, when I was in the field of conservation, it was a lot harder to take a step back from any of this news. Mm -hmm. I would occasionally like cry myself to sleep because like, Mm. that's how upsetting. I found like huge wildfires and and just like trying to wrap your head around that. So I guess that's probably part of it. I guess I shouldn't project my, my personal like medical diagnosis upon the world, but like, that's, that's something that I think my anxiety gets focused on a lot is making sure everyone's okay. And this seems to be something that makes people not okay at all. So, okay. Why hope you, you've just, I mean, personally, obviously to not cry yourself to sleep over climate change. That's an important part. I read the adaptation policy maker summary. So if you actually look at the reports, good for you. they're thousands of pages long. It's okay. This is not that big of a task. I promise. No one, you know, no one has read the actual report, <laughs> the actual assessment. It's, it's thousands of pages long. It's like 3000 pages long for this one section. I bet you there's like a hundred pages of citations. <laughs> There's just a lot going on, but that's not really why that they're trying to make it to inform policymakers. And the politicians are also not going to be reading that. So they make policymaker summaries that are about 40 pages long. And that is actually an extremely digestible 
piece of material. If you're someone in the audience being like, well, that's for someone above my pay grade. Like politicians are not smarter than you. You can read it too. It's actually extremely accessible. And one of the things that I enjoyed about it is that like they would make statements and then they would put in little parentheses, like high confidence, medium confidence. Oh, so it kind of helps you be like, okay, this is the stuff that they're real, real sure about. And this is the stuff that they're like, we're still kind of figuring out, but we feel confident enough to tell you in this report that it's worth keeping an eye on. I like that. I liked it a lot. I found it was extremely readable. So highly recommend. Uh, here's what I found. This is not the one that just came out. It's the one from before. It just happened to come up first on Google. And I'm actually glad it was because I, it sounds like talking about carbon capture would have really pushed my buttons. Instead, this one is about, again, that adaptation part. Like what are the impacts and how can we adapt and how are we adapting? So the good thing is, broadly speaking, we know what to do. This is not a, this is not a mystery of how we solve this. This is, I mean, as we get into tighter and tighter timelines, it's going to probably be tougher and tougher, but we know what to do. And another good thing is a lot of the solutions are not a lot, but some are within the reach of local governments and organizations. So protecting forest habitats, protecting riverine habitats, using green infrastructure in our cities to help reduce flooding, for example, planting trees in low income areas to offset the heat from hotter summers. This will all help protect people and animals from climate change impacts. And that gave me a lot of hope. Also, our systems in place are flexible to a certain extent. Our economic, ecological, and social systems are flexible. It's not like if one thing happens, everything's gone to crap. And that's something that I think sometimes is used on the other side of the argument. Well, nature will adapt. It evolves. Life finds a way, right? And I I think that those are true, but that's not an argument for... for Right. So this is meeting in the middle. Things are going to adapt. We are going to have to adapt, but things can also only adapt so much. And that's what was in there also was like some of those systems are at their limits. Now we can't like, we can't expect them to continue to flex. The good thing is a lot of these mitigation efforts, uh, because they looked at it from an economic, ecological, political. So like what's going to create violent unrest in some of these areas, who's going to be impacted most. It's going to be marginalized communities, low income people who are nomadic were mentioned in that. So people who don't have, they're more in informal settlements. So that was really interesting. Another thing that gives me hope always is any amount that we can reduce the warming is good. Yes. I feel like we're always like, like I just talked about a deadline and that's like sort of true. It's we measure things certain arbitrary, but like the worst of the impacts happen after 1.5 degrees Celsius, but the earth is not going to explode. Correct. If we miss it, (laughs) there's no meteor coming. Like that's, that's not what's going to happen. One of my favorite people on planet earth, his name is Hank green. He's a science educator. He's the best pointed out the other day that earth has multiple tipping points. Um, now these, this also is a separate conversation that stresses me out, but it's basically to say, yeah, once we hit that, it's not like, well, might as well walk away guys. We're all over. If we exceed one scenario, we hit that, like we, we miss that first target, which is 1.5 degrees of warming, which sounds little guys. I know it sounds tiny, but it's mostly impacting the poles. It's kind of like gradually goes up in latitude. It's hard to understand. Because like, like 1.5 degrees, it's in Celsius. So it's like two something degrees. 
that's not that much, but it translates to some crazy crap. Awesome yeah. Um, but yeah, once we pass that, that's not a reason to give up. That's not a reason to be like, well, I'm going to go strap on my gas mask and walk out into the apocalypse. Like it is time to keep working because if we hit 1.6 and stop it, that's way better than 1.7 or 1.8, etc., etc. So that gives me hope that there's not a deadline. And another thing that I liked is a lot of things that I'm passionate about are included in ways to adapt to climate change. So urban agriculture, yes. which I've talked about a million times, they talked about as a way to, you know, if we have extreme weather patterns shift, it's going to impact our ability to produce crops on a large scale. So having urban infrastructure for food production helps protect against those social programs to protect the most vulnerable are a great way to help mitigate some of those impacts of climate change, making sure people have healthcare, making sure people have these systems that help protect them because they don't have the ability to personally adapt in the same way to something that's such a big issue. Oh, that like makes me feel like, as you've said, we're all working in the same direction. Yeah. There are so many ways to get involved in this. So if climate change is not something that has resonated with you, or you feel like it's nebulous or you're having trouble, like, because that's, it's just sort of the way that my mind works too, that I just deal better in things that are like right in front of me that I can see and grasp and like fully, like there is a right and a wrong (laughs) answer and there aren't, 5 million different components. Um, Find what you are passionate about within this. All of those things that we listed off. If you are somebody who cares about helping impoverished communities, or if you are somebody who is passionate about where your food comes from or whatever, whatever the case may be, find where your passion is, find where your interest is and, and, and start there and invest there and then it can grow from there. Yeah. You, unlike what my teachers had told me, (laughs) are not personally responsible for stopping carbon emissions from entering the atmosphere. It's not doable by one person. Some very powerful people could do a lot though, not, not take (laughs) the onus off of you people who have policy making decisions, but you personally out there listener, unless Unless you're, a politician. <laughs> Unless you're a politician, in which case I'm looking at you. I mean, but it also takes a lot of cooperation as well within yes, politics, which does. is not something we're really good at. We're, di- we're, we're diving we're away from the hope here. Come back. But to the that. hope. Yeah. No, the hope is basically, like you said, finding something you're passionate about. Stop trying to care about everything as passionately as everything else, because there's mm-hmm. lots of things you can focus on and figure out both what you're good at and what you're passionate about and how it does good. And those things can be really helpful for giving yourself direction in something that might feel like you're treading water and maybe drowning in it. I did have a last quote about hope and it's within the context of this report. And it's by German vice chancellor and minister for the economy and climate, Robert Habeck. And I wanted you to read it, Sarah. I'm so excited to read it. He says, hope can lead to action. If you're afraid of something, then you hide away. You shy away. You run away. If you hope for something, then you can find some motivation, power, and energy in yourself. And this is what we need. Hope that we can achieve great things that the problem of the moment can be overcome by building up a new renewable world. 
and we'll be back in just a moment with our homework. back with our challenge of the week. If you're not familiar with our podcast, boy, what an intro to it. Uh, we give you actions that you can complete every week to make a little bit of a difference, to make the world a little greener. And so this week's homework, it's a little nebulous. It's a little like journaly, a little, you know, introspective. <laughs> little creative homework. Is yes. Like yes. This. There's not challenge, necessarily. Not yeah. It's a challenge, right? Yeah. We're, we're, we're not, we're the cool teachers. <laughs> <laughs> there's no uh, grades right just you know participate and we'll be happy about it basically it's to do what we just talked about to identify what your strengths are and what your passions are and find something that might intersect with helping cl- fight climate change so if it's something like you know we've talked about faith if you minister to particular you know groups of people Figuring out how that intersects with climate change. If there's food insecurity due to climate change, having systems in place through either the government or through organizations like faith-based organizations is one way to help. Um, If you're someone who is passionate in local government, there are things that you can make a big difference on. If you're just Joe Schmo down the road and you just really like, you know, educating your fellow humans about things, that's one way that you can help out. So I think that it would be good to write it down too. I think you should, yeah. you should try and figure out what are my strengths? What do I really love and how can I help? Um, I am going to have a link in the description. Um, there is a website that actually helps local governments come up with action plans to help with green infrastructure, to help with carbon neutrality and building new buildings and how to be more eco-friendly to prepare for climate change. Some larger cities have climate resiliency officers, but a lot of those smaller areas don't. And so if you take a look at this, maybe it's something that you can talk to your local officials about looking into as they look to build new projects. How do we do, Sarah? Thanks, Casey. I'm still a little teary eyed. (laughs) I loved that quote. I really enjoyed this discussion. I do feel like it was helpful because as often as we hear or see IPCC in the news, I, and I have a general understanding of what it is. It was really helpful just to have that kind of brief window into what really is this group? What really do they do? How does this work? What do these reports really mean? So I thought that was very helpful. And, and I do actually feel very hopeful right now. So good. (laughs) Thanks for that. And I'm excited. I like the challenge for this week too. And I am excited to be a little introspective and dive deeper in a little to what my interests and motivations and other ways that I might be able to have an impact. I feel like this is probably our most personal podcast yet. We've talked a lot about like we went deep today. feelings and faith and, <laughs> yeah. and future <laughs> okay well if you guys want to share with us your feelings and faith and future on climate change if you want to share with us your homework excellent we'll make a little graph all of that I do want to say I believe it, it's the eco-social worker on Instagram's a good follow because I'm pretty sure that some of these ideas if not are are taken from that person's 
book straight up, but also like it, at least they inspired me to, to think about it in this way and limit my scope. Um, so where can they tell us all the things, Sarah? Oh boy. Okay. They can find us on Facebook, a little greener podcast. They can find us at Instagram at a little greener pod. They can find us on Twitter at a greener. I think it's at a greener podcast, but I forgot to look at it once again. I don't know. I'm pretty sure. Don't tweet at us, I guess. <laughs> no, tweet at us. <laughs> tweet at us. But it's, I think it's at a greener podcast. And then you can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. We're happy to hear from you anytime about anything that you feel like sharing. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you have a good week. Bye.